Hello, this is Chris Date, and you are listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, Episode 1, Bring Me to Life. Yes, indeed, I am breathing into this microphone and making this podcast real, bringing it to life, for better or for worse. I want to thank you for joining me for the first of what I hope is many episodes to come. Things might be a little awkward at first, as I'm still learning what this whole podcasting thing is all about, and I suspect that getting the ball rolling with any podcast has got to be difficult. But I expect to get the hang of this, and hopefully after a few episodes, it won't be quite so excruciating to listen along. The topic of this inaugural episode, as the title of the intro music loosely suggests, is the resurrection. Not Christ's resurrection, but my resurrection and your resurrection, the resurrection of all the dead at the end of time. Now I wouldn't be surprised if some of you don't know what it is that I'm talking about, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later in this episode. I've chosen this topic because it'll help me to introduce myself and what it is that this podcast is going to be all about. It'll also give me an opportunity to dive right into one area of theology and apologetics that's of particular interest to me. But first, let me give a little bit of my testimony as it pertains to this podcast and why I'm doing it. When I was saved about eight years ago, I didn't have any experience in the church. This faith was brand new to me. Um, so I, I started seeking out sermons and things like that on the radio in the hopes that I could learn something about this new faith of mine. It wasn't long before I happened upon Hank Hanegraaff's The Bible Answer Man, and although today Hank and I disagree in several areas, he really helped me to build a firm foundation in biblical theology, and this, as it turned out, would soon prove to be vital. Now before I keep going, I, uh, so I have some friends and family who might be listening, and if you are, thanks so much, <laughs> it means a lot, who might be unfamiliar with some of the terms and concepts that I'm going to be talking about in this and in future episodes. So. Uh, I want to do my best to explain what these terms and concepts mean before I really talk about them at length. I just use the term theology, which has a few definitions, but here use, I'm using it to refer to a set of beliefs, doctrines, or teaching. And when I talk about biblical theology, I'm talking about beliefs, doctrines, and teachings which are consistent with what the Bible has to say. So back to my testimony, uh, I was soon challenged theologically by some friends of mine. Some of, some of them were Jehovah's Witnesses, others were Mormons. And I knew right away, because of what I'd learned from Hank's show, that some of the things that they were telling me just weren't quite right. Um, and I also knew that what I needed to do was dig deeply into Scripture to find out what, ha what God had to say about these things. Um, but I didn't want to rely solely on my own experience, so I sought out the work of experts in these fields who've dedicated years to examining scripture and comparing it with what these, um, what these people were telling me. Now, perhaps needless to say, um, it, these views proved inconsistent with scripture. I, you know, they just, they don't fit with, with the Bible. Uh, and this gave me a confidence um, in rejecting their views, but I didn't want to stop there. I wanted to reach out to them with the truth that, they, that I felt that they were rejecting. This introduced me to the topic of apologetics. 
Apologetics is the uh, art and science of defending defending one's faith, both for the purpose of um, justifying one's rejection of other views, but also uh, in the hope of persuading others. Looking back to those experiences and the years since, what I've learned about apologetics has really helped me to reach out to um, a lot of people. I've seen some results, and I really praise God for those results, and you know, maybe we'll talk about some of those in future episodes. But perhaps more importantly, what I've learned about theology and apologetics has really protected me. There have been a number of times where if I didn't care deeply about theology and about apologetics, um, I could have easily been deceived and led astray into false doctrines and bad ideas. And one thing that I think that we might discover in future episodes is that bad ideas oftentimes have bad consequences, and I don't want to face the consequences of bad ideas. So that's really what the apologetics is about. It's a silly combination of the words theology and apologetics, and I know that it doesn't roll off the tongue very nicely. So maybe in the future the name will change, I don't know. But in the meantime, the apologetics is about sharing my love for theology and apologetics in the hope that others will catch the fire too. I also share this passion at a blog that shares the name of this podcast at theapologetics.com. I've written and will likely continue to write a lot more there than I can cover in this podcast. So if you've got the time to read uh, what I've written there, I welcome your feedback, your suggestions, even any questions you might have, which I could address either there at my blog or on this podcast. Now, unrelated to theology and apologetics, I've also begun competitively powerlifting, and if you're at all interested in um, my experiences in that world, you can check out my blog at chrisdatepower.blogspot.com. Now, I mentioned earlier that the topic of the resurrection was going to help me introduce myself and explain what this podcast is all about. You see, over the past several months, I've had several experiences which have made me really concerned for the church here in America. A few months ago, I was challenged by a friend over the issue of baptism and its importance concerning uh, the Christian salvation. And this will probably be the topic of a future episode. But what I discovered uh, in talking with him about this issue was that he didn't believe in, or at least was unaware of, the Bible's teaching on the resurrection of all the dead. Now, what concerned me was that this was not a new Christian, uh, as I was about eight years ago. Rather, he had been a believer for a number of years and had been attending church with his family for several years. Despite that, though, he had never heard of or, or been taught about the resurrection. Now, I pressed him on the issue, refusing to debate baptism until he agreed with me concerning the resurrection, and we'll talk about that why later. I think that we'll see it's a bigger problem. And after a couple of weeks of study and talking to his pastor, he uh, came back and agreed about the resurrection, and that's awesome. But while I was waiting for a response from him, I was requesting prayer from a small group I'm a part of. And when I was explaining that I was trying to share with my friend uh, the issue of the resurrection, it seemed like one of the people in the small group was surprised that I was talking about a future resurrection of all the dead and not Christ's past resurrection. Again, this wasn't a new Christian. Uh, this was somebody who had been a Christian for several years who was unaware of this important biblical concept. Later, in speaking about this whole episode with a couple of friends of mine, I found out that they too were largely unaware of um, what the Bible has to say about the future resurrection of the dead. So here in the course of about a month, uh, four or more seasoned Christians uh, didn't know anything about the resurrection. Now, if you're listening and you recognize yourself as one of the people that I'm talking about, please know that this is not a cri criticism of you or your pastors or teachers in particular, but it is instead a criticism of the American church and her culture as a whole. 
Also know that I will always keep uh, your identities and, and everybody else's identities private, um, so nobody's going to know who you're talking about. Now, this concern about ignorance about the resurrection remained below my radar uh, in the back of my mind for a couple of months, but it was brought back to light this most recent weekend. Our head pastor is going through the book of Colossians right now, but he was out of town this weekend or something like that, and so we had a guest pastor who continued um, through the first chapter for us. Now, he said some things, or didn't say some things, that kind of made me upset. I wasn't yelling or anything like that, but I was visibly upset, and my wife had to whisper to me to calm down. He came to verse 12, which says that he, we are giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, in order to explain to us what our inheritance is as saints in light, he took us to Romans 8, and he read from verse 30, which reads, These whom God predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification, this guest pastor said, is our inheritance. And that's true, but recalling my concern about uh, the resurrection, I anticipated that the guest pastor would explain that glorification is the process in which our bodies are raised from the dead and glorified, made into the uh, glorified body that Christ had in his resurrection. But that's not what the guest pastor said. I don't remember his exact words, but he said it was something along the lines of seeing God face to face in all his glory. Now that's true, there's an element of truth in that. But without specifically mentioning the resurrection when talking about what glorification is, I think that it gives people the impression that what the author is speaking about is heaven um, as a place where our spirits go when we die. Now we'll come back to this passage later, but suffice it to say for now that that's not what glorification is or what this passage is talking about. So we returned to Colossians and continued to the first chapter, and I liked what he had to say about some of these verses, uh, the ones that speak of Jesus as the image of the invisible God, for example. Um, he did great with firstborn of all creation, explaining that it's not what the cults say that means. But then he got to verse 18, where it says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He explained that firstborn from the dead means that Jesus conquered death in a way that nobody else had. Uh, Lazarus, for example, had had rose, but then died again later at some point, whereas Christ is the only one who's died and rose again and lives forever. While this is true, um, again, I think that it misses something. Firstborn from the dead, I think, also means that he was the first of many, uh, everybody, in fact, who will likewise one day rise. But again, the, the guest pastor made no mention of the resurrection here. Now, my friends might have had an excuse, you know, they, they may not have been taught, um, or maybe they've were taught incorrectly. Um, but this was a pastor uh, whose responsibility is to guide the flock. And by mentioning, uh, not mentioning it at all, I think he was doing a disservice to his audience, many of whom are probably completely unaware of the resurrection. Um, in fact, there were probably about 200 of us in attendance at that service, which was one out of like five over the course of the weekend. So this guest pastor had preached to over a thousand listeners probably and neglected to even mention what is taught by at least, I think, two of the verses that he spoke on. Now, I need to forgive him for this and, and, and not judge him. He may have had his reasons. Um, he may have felt that what he was preaching on was, was more important. Who knows? So I'm, I'm not going to judge him. And, and also, of course, a pastor needs to be led by the Holy Spirit and not by me. Um, nevertheless, I think that um, I was at least somewhat justified in being initially upset. You see, it's, it's no wonder that many of my friends are unaware of the resurrection. Um, it doesn't appear that it's being taught. At least it seems that way to me. But I think there's another factor. I think part of the problem is the terminology that we've adopted. This idea of going to heaven. 
has been woven tightly into the fabric of church culture in America and in American culture as a whole. Some of the teachers I respect most speak of resurrection in this way. R.C. Sproul, for example, is just now doing a series in his podcast where he's talking about going to heaven, but he clearly is referring to the resurrection. Um, it's everywhere, even at the Puyallup Fair. <laughs> There's a booth that I, I've seen where it asks, are you going to heaven? Um, so this idea of going to heaven is everywhere. While I think that the question of what it takes to get to heaven is asking fundamentally the right question, I think that it betrays a misunderstanding of what it is that, as Christians, we hope for in the future. You see, by, by heaven, I think that we usually have in mind a spiritual realm where our spirits go when we die. In theological language, this is known as the intermediate state, uh, and it's so-called because it's between death and resurrection. As we'll see shortly, though, the church historically has emphasized the resurrection. And while the Bible may have something to say about the intermediate state that we call heaven, it has far, far more to say about the resurrection and transformation of our bodies. So this problem exemplifies my goal in starting this podcast. Whether due to poor teaching or because of misleading terminology, many Christians I know are ignorant of this important biblical doctrine and place their hope in heaven instead of the resurrection where it belongs. And I think American Christians are likewise ignorant of a whole host of biblical teachings. And I think it's important that we take seriously everything in scripture and not neglect anything that the Bible has anything to say about. Otherwise, we may be ignorant of something that the Lord desires that we understand, something that might be even important for our salvation or at least our sanctification. Additionally, we place ourselves at great risk of being deceived and led astray by false teachers. Teachers whose messages only sound plausible because we're unfamiliar with what the Bible actually says. On the other hand, if we develop a love for and intimate knowledge of biblical theology, we can immediately recognize false teachings as they loom on the horizon, as the Bible Answer Man puts it. And if we study and practice apologetics, I think that we can help free the blind who are in bondage to falsehood. So that's the goal of the apologetics. I'm going to discuss what the Bible has to say and what the church has historically said concerning a wide variety of issues so that we'll have a better, stronger, more biblical worldview, so that we'll recognize false beliefs when we're challenged by them, and so that we can share the truth with those we love who reject it. I'm also going to point you to other resources, podcasts even, whose aim, like mine, is to help you to develop a more biblical worldview. In fact, I'm going to play a short promo for one right now, one hosted by a friend of mine, an episode of which I recently had the good pleasure to guest host. Hi, this is Dee Dee Warren of the Preterist Podcast, where I discuss biblical prophecy without the hype and sensationalism found in many evangelical circles. So if you would like to learn a different, yet completely orthodox, way to view things, such as the Great Tribulation and the so-called Rapture, please have a listen. The podcast can be found on iTunes and many other podcasting directories, or can be found directly at PreteristPodcast.com. Please do listen to Dee Dee's podcast. I highly recommend it. I thoroughly enjoy it. And guest hosting her show was so fun and the feedback <laughs> positive enough that it finally convinced me to get off my rear end and start my own podcast, which is something I've wanted to do for a long time. Also, promoting her podcast serves as a convenient segue into the next part of our episode, where we'll start to talk about what the church has said and what the Bible says about the resurrection. You see, the topic of Dee Dee's podcast is a view of the end times, which I share, called preterism. Preterism is an orthodox view, which means that it's in agreement with what the historic church has said concerning the essentials of the Christian faith. 
According to this view, many of the prophecies in scripture, which we normally think of as being ones which will be fulfilled in the future, were actually fulfilled by events in our past. These include, perhaps most notably, the Great Tribulation, the sign of the Son of Man in the sky, and the mark of the beast. But it doesn't include things like the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of the dead, things which we preterists acknowledge is yet to happen in our future. But in modern times, a small but vocal group of people has co-opted the term preterism and changed its meaning, or at least tried to. Um, this view, which ought to be called hyper-preterism at, at best, teaches that all prophecies in the Bible have been fulfilled in the past, including the second coming of Christ and what they call the resurrection, which they say is strictly spiritual and, and they deny that it's physical. A major focus of Dee Dee's show is refuting this false view and drawing a sharp distinction between the preterism of history, which is completely biblical, and this modern novelty, which denies some of the essentials of the Christian faith and thus makes it heretical or unorthodox. Now, if you doubt that the resurrection is as important as I'm claiming it is, if you think that I'm making a mountain out of a molehill, <clears throat> when you have your Bible in front of you, turn to Second uh, Timothy 2 and start reading in verse 16. Uh, in the New American Standard Version, this reads, Avoid worldly and, and worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Now, there are two things worth noting here. First, Paul likens this claim that the resurrection had already taken place to gangrene, or cancer as the New Living Translation puts it, a disease that destroys flesh and spreads if untreated to the point where it eventually eats away at the bones. Second, he says that this view was upsetting people's faiths, but in the original Greek it's probably more properly translated destroy or overthrow as the New International Version and the King James Version put it. So I like the way that the New Living Translation puts it when it says that they turned people away from their faiths. So you see, this particular false understanding of the res resurrection, one that hyperpreterists have, was spreading like cancer and shipwrecking people's faiths. What this tells us is that what we think about the resurrection is very important. It's not a minor issue. So true is this that the historic church included it in several of their creeds. For those of you not familiar, creeds were ways of authoritatively codifying or summarizing authentic Christian belief. Uh, they're like the statements of faith that you might see on your church's website. They often arose out of a need to refute false teachers. So what they did is they defined true Christianity and um, distinguished it from false Christianity, from heresy. So for something to appear in the creeds, it was very important for all Christians to believe. One of the early creeds, called the Apostles' Creed, in its earliest form read, I believe in Jesus Christ who sits at the right hand of the Father, whence he will come to judge the living and the dead, and in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Church, the remission of sins, the resurrection of the flesh, the life everlasting. Notice that there's no mention of the intermediate state that we call heaven. Instead, Christians affirmed belief in the resurrection of the flesh, which here the Greek text called life everlasting. Now, the, this comes from perhaps as late as the 4th century, but it was based on an earlier creed, one apparently quoted by Irenaeus, who lived and wrote in the 2nd century. This uh, so-called rule of faith expresses belief in Christ Jesus our Lord and his future appearing from heaven in the glory of the Father to sum up all things and to raise anew all flesh of the whole human race. 
Again, no mention of heaven, but rather the raising anew of all flesh of the whole human race. The Athanasian Creed from the 5th century or so says Christians believe Jesus sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the quick and the dead, at whose coming all men will rise again with their bodies, and shall give account for their own works, and they that have done good shall go into life everlasting, and they that have done evil into everlasting fire. Once again, not the intermediate state, but rising again with bodies, and with those bodies going into life everlasting. But it wasn't just corporately in these creeds that the church unified on emphasizing the resurrection of the dead. We find it also in the uh, teachings of the individual church fathers themselves. Polycarp, who lived in the first and second century and who's believed to have been a disciple of John the Apostle, wrote a letter to the Philippians saying, Whosoever perverts the oracles of the Lord to his own lusts and says that there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, he is the firstborn of Satan. Now, when Polycarp was martyred, his congregation wrote a letter to the whole church claiming that when Polycarp died, he prayed, saying, I give you thanks that you have counted me worthy of this day and this hour, that I should have a part in the number of your martyrs, in the cup of your Christ, to the resurrection of eternal life, both of soul and body. Tertullian lived in the second and third centuries and wrote an entire discourse on the resurrection. He wrote, The resurrection of the dead is the Christian's trust. By it, we are believers. To the belief of this article of the faith, truth compels us. That truth which God reveals, but the crowd derides, which supposes that nothing will survive after death. So, survival after death, in his mind, was not heaven, but the resurrection. He went on to say, Why be clothed by one who is naked if you have put on Christ? Why use the shield of another when the apostle gives you armor of your own? It would be better for him to learn from you to acknowledge the resurrection of the flesh than for you from him to deny it. He therefore will not be a Christian who shall deny this doctrine which is confessed by Christians. He went so far as to say, There is nobody who lives so much in accordance with the flesh as they who deny the resurrection of the flesh. And so that there can't be any confusion, he wrote, When the resurrection of the dead is spoken of, it is the rising again of men's bodies that is meant. Athenagoras lived in the second century, and he also wrote a treatise on the resurrection of the dead. He wrote, and forgive this really long quote, Because the man cannot be said to exist when the body is dissolved, and indeed entirely scattered abroad, even though the soul continue by itself, it is absolutely necessary that the end of a man's being should appear in some reconstitution of the two together, and of the same living being. And as this follows of necessity, there must by all means be a resurrection of the bodies which are dead, or even entirely dissolved, and the same men must be formed anew, since the law of nature ordains the end not absolutely nor as the end of any man whatsoever, but of the same men who passed through the previous life. But it is impossible for those same men to be reconstituted unless the same bodies are restored to the same souls. Augustine lived in the 4th and 5th centuries, and he referred often to the resurrection. In commenting on Psalm 30, he wrote that it is a psalm of the joy of the resurrection and the change, the renewing of the body to an immortal state, and not only of the Lord, but also of the whole church. In commenting on Psalm 63, he wrote, Because to our flesh also is promised resurrection. As to our soul is promised blessedness, so also to our flesh is promised resurrection. Such a resurrection of the flesh, therefore, to us is promised, as that, although it be the same flesh that now we carry, which is to rise again, yet it has not the corruption which now it has. 
And uh, though I can't find this cited text online, it's said that Augustine wrote, No doctrine of the Christian faith is so vehemently and so obstinately opposed as the doctrine of the resurrection of the flesh. So we see that these church fathers really spoke highly of the resurrection, even going so far as to say that it is what defines Christian belief. And here, at least in the works that I cited, very little, if anything at all, is spoken of the soul or the spirit in heaven awaiting the resurrection. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that they were right, okay? Just because the church unanimously and vigorously affirmed belief in the resurrection of bodies uh, doesn't mean that they were correct. And if they emphasized the resurrection and de-emphasized the so-called intermediate state, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that we should do the same. But what it does mean is that if we're going to reverse this emphasis or outright deny the resurrection of the flesh, as hyperpreterists do, we better make absolutely certain that we're justified in doing that. And, and we need to make sure that scripture speaks loudly in our favor and not in favor of the historic church. So let's start taking a look at scripture. And since I spent a lot of time so far in this episode railing on the modern American church's emphasis on heaven, let's first look at passages which might talk about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 6 to 8 read, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Now, uh, I'm not convinced, and, and a lot of people dispute, that this does in fact refer to heaven or the intermediate state. But for the sake of argument, let's assume that it does. That's one. Philippians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 read, If I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Now again, many do not think this refers to the intermediate state, but again, we'll include it for the sake of argument. So that's two. Second Timothy chapter 4 verse 6 reads, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Now if departure in the Philippians passage that we looked at points to heaven, then this passage in Timothy likely does as well, since it uses the same language. That's three now. Second Peter chapter 1 verse 14 reads, Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. Now, if being absent from the body and home with the Lord in the other passage we looked at is referring to heaven, then here Peter's laying aside of my earthly dwelling probably does as well. Luke 16, um, verses 19 to 31, is the famous parable of Lazarus and the rich man, in which Jesus uh, paints a picture of a rich man and a poor man um, dying. And because the rich man in life... Uh, neglected Lazarus's needs, he goes to torment in Hades, and he sees Lazarus across a chasm being comforted by Abraham. He begs Abraham to let him warn his still-living brothers. So, you know, this definitely is a picture of, of um, life after death, before the resurrection, in uh, this intermediate state. But this is a parable, one based on what was then a common Jewish fairy tale, so we can't be dogmatically um, insistent that this is reflective of reality. And besides, the point of this parable isn't to illustrate what happens after death, but to teach people how to treat others. But again, for the sake of argument, we'll include it. Um, when Christ was on the cross in Luke chapter 23, verses 42 to 43, the thief on the cross says to him, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. 
And Jesus responds to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now some argue that this doesn't refer to the intermediate state, and um, I don't agree with all of their arguments. Some of them are more convincing than others. But I mean, it seems clear to me that Jesus is telling the thief that that day they would be together in paradise. So I'm going to include it. And then finally, in Revelation chapter 6, 9 through 11, John sees the disembodied spirits or the souls of those who've um, died and haven't been resurrected, so they're without their bodies. And they're crying out to God. But this is a vision, uh, an apocalyptic vision, one rich in symbolism. And we don't know if this particular symbol means that this is what, was a what actually happens when we are awaiting resurrection. But again, we'll include it. So... To my knowledge, and, and please contact me to correct me if I'm wrong about this, but this, these uh, passages are the only ones I'm aware of that are used to back up the teaching of the intermediate state that we call heaven. So to summarize, what we've got are seven passages. We have two which use language that doesn't clearly and emphatically speak of heaven, and which are believed by many not to be speaking of it at all. We have two which only speak of death and say nothing of heaven, but use language like departure, which were included in the other two passages. We have one parable based on a fairy tale, not intended to teach about what happens after death after at all. We have a highly symbolic vision, which we can't be certain is telling us souls are conscious after death in heaven. And so what that leaves us with, in my opinion, is one verse that seems to strongly support the idea of the intermediate state. And that's Jesus' emphatic statement that the thief would that day be with him in paradise. So seven passages, only one of which, in my opinion, really speaks loudly in favor of this view. Also, I think that it should be kept in mind that scripture often speaks of death as sleep. Uh, Daniel 12.2 speaks of those who sleep in the dust of the ground. Isaiah 26.19 tells those who lie in the dust to awake and shout for joy. Job 14.12 says, Man lies down and does not rise. Until the heavens are no longer, he will not awake nor be aroused out of his sleep. 1 Corinthians 15.51 says, We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed, meaning that not all will be dead when Christ returns. John 11.11-14 11, 11 um, has Jesus saying, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. John records that Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. 1 Thessalonians 4.14 says, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And there are other passages as well. Now, could it be that these are speaking of death as sleep only from the perspective of the living? I certainly think that's possible. I don't necessarily think that these teach that there is no consciousness in death, as some people do. But I think it's interesting that in these and other passages, Scripture refers to death as sleep more than it does as consciousness. So it seems to me that if there is consciousness after death awaiting the resurrection, it's got to be something less, something lacking, and that what we really long for is the fullness to be found in the resurrection. So with all that in mind, what I want to do now is look at passages which speak of the resurrection. And as I think that we'll see, Scripture does so much more often, much more emphatically, much more clearly, and explicitly in some cases teaches that our bodies will be raised. It's, it's not just a solely... Uh, spiritual experience as hyperpreterists claim. So first, Jesus taught the resurrection. In Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 to 32, the Sadducees who deny the resurrection tried to trick him. They presented him with a hypothetical scenario uh, in which a woman has had seven successive husbands, all of whom have died. And they ask him in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Now, Jesus says that in the resurrection we'll not be married or given in marriage, and he says that really briefly to get to the uh, to answer their question, but then he moves on. 
he, he to, in order to prove the resurrection, which is what they were trying to um, trick him into, into denying, he's, in order to prove it, he points to Exodus 3, 6, where God says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now, Jesus says he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he's not trying to prove that this woman's husbands are living in some sense in heaven. After all, the Sadducees were asking whose wife will she be in the future at the resurrection? Not right now. So, uh, in Matthew here, we see Jesus teaching the resurrection, and he does it again in Luke chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. He urges his followers to show mercy to the poor and hungry and lame, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. He does it again in John chapter 5, verses 28 to 29. He says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Uh, he does it again in John 6. He says, All that the Father has given me, I will lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Four times in this passage, he speaks of raising him up on the last day. Uh, it can't be the intermediate state, because he's talking about the last day, when it will happen, when he comes again. So, Jesus taught it. Second of all, his listeners often expected it, and we have one example of it in John 11, uh, verses 21 to 24, where Jesus, where Jesus says to Martha about her dead brother, Your brother will rise again. Now Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So again, um, here his listeners are expecting the resurrection on the last day. Third, the Pharisees all believed in it. In Acts 23, 6-8, Paul says, Brethren, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees, and I am on, the tri uh, on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. In this passage, Luke records that some of the Jews in attendance were Sadducees who deny the resurrection and that a uh, kind of um, dispute erupted between them and the Pharisees. So I'm not saying that everybody alive then expected the resurrection, but the Pharisees certainly did. We see this again in Acts 24, verses 14 and 15, where Paul says, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So Paul, having been formerly a Pharisee, says that the resurrection is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And he says of the Pharisees that, um, that they too cherish the hope of the resurrection. And then in Acts 26, verses 4 to 8, Paul says, I lived as a Pharisee according to the strictest sect of our religion, and now I am standing trial for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. He goes on to say that the promise that the twelve tribes hope to attain is that God would raise the dead. Fourth, Paul and Peter both in their epistles to the churches uh, taught the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, the entire chapter is Paul's magnum opus on the resurrection of the dead. In verses 12 and 13, he says, If Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. So, Paul says that we are to be raised because Christ was raised. In verse 19, he says, If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The life in which we hope then, and without which we are to be pitied, is in the resurrection. In verse 20, he says, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. So his being the first fruits of the rest of the dead means they too will be raised. Verse 23 says, all will be made alive, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. 
Verse 26 says the last enemy that will be abolished is death. So even assuming an intermediate state, death isn't abolished until the end at the resurrection. Paul goes on to say that the whole reason we preach the gospel and suffer for it is because we know we will be raised from the dead. Now, when asked what sort of bodies we will be raised with, he says in verse 42 that in the resurrection of the dead it is sown a perishable body, it is raised an imperishable body. Now this is really important because what he says is that the thing raised is first sown a perishable body. So it's not our spirits that are raised, it's our bodies. Our mortal, perishable bodies are sown in death and then raised, transformed into imperishable bodies. And then he says it is raised in glory. Remember earlier I said the guest pastor might have left the audience with the impression that um, glorification is the spirit going to heaven at death? Well now do you see what glorification really is? It's taking what was sown a dishonorable body and raising it unto glory. This is why in that passage in Romans, uh, chapter 8, verse 23, Paul says that we groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. Glorification is not the redemption of our spirits. It's the redemption of our bodies. Now, some might object um, to this whole thing because in verse 44, Paul writes, sorry, 44 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that the body a uh, sown natural body is raised a spiritual body. The implication, these people might argue, is that a spiritual body is not physical. After all, Jesus said a spirit does not have flesh and blood, and in verse 50 here, Paul says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But this argument misses two things. First, spiritual doesn't mean non-physical. Five chapters early, uh, earlier in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, Paul says that his fathers, the Israelites, ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. But what he's referring to there is the manna from heaven, which they ate, which was, of course, physical, and the water from the rock, which they drank, which was, of course, physical. So a spiritual body is not a non-physical body. Second, the fact that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God doesn't mean that flesh and blood can't enter the kingdom of God. It just means that a body that's only flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God because it's lacking something. But a body that is more than flesh and blood, one transformed by and driven by the power of the Holy Spirit, most definitely can. So this whole chapter not only emphasizes how vital the doctrine of the resurrection is uh, by saying that, it, uh, that our preaching is in vain if it's not true, but it also drives a stake into the heart of hyperpreterism because this chapter insists that the resurrection is physical, that our physical bodies are raised unto eternal life. Paul also speaks of the resurrection in Philippians chapter 3. In verses 10 and 11, we read that he wants to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. And verse 21 says that Christ will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. So here we're being told that our resurrection body is going to be like the body that Christ had in his resurrection, which of course was physical, as we know, because his disciples were able to touch his flesh and because he ate after his resurrection. In his second letter to the Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul says in verse 14 that he has faith that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise also us with Jesus and will present us with you. 
this leads into Second Corinthians five and verses two through four, where um, where he says that we are longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now this harkens back to First Corinthians fifteen verse fifty three, which says that this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. So even here in Second Corinthians 5, where there's language a few verses later believed by some to teach the intermediate state, we have much stronger language pointing toward the resurrection. In First Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 15, Paul writes that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And then he says in verse 16 that the dead in Christ will, the dead in Christ will rise first. Now this isn't the intermediate state, because the dead in Christ are presumably already there. And then Peter, in 2 Peter 3, in verse 13, says we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So you see, we're not merely awaiting heaven, but a new earth. And this leads us to a fifth example of people in scripture who believed and taught the resurrection. In John's vision of the future in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, Paul saw those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This, he was told, is the first resurrection, but he, but he was told that the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. And then John saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books. He saw the dead being judged because the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And then he saw death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. So if in John's future death and Hades, which is the grave, was to give up the dead which were in them, then the resurrection in this passage is not the intermediate state in heaven, at least the second resurrection, because that would have been ongoing in John's day. Also, we saw earlier that Jesus would defeat death uh, coinciding with the res resurrection, and that corresponds with what we see here when death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Now, at this point, one might object, uh, reminding me that earlier in this episode I said John's vision of the souls in heaven might be symbolic. Couldn't, therefore, this vision of the resurrection be symbolic? Well, yeah, except that in all of those other passages we've looked at, the resurrection is a literal, physical reality. So while there are certainly um, elements of symbolism in this passage, like the lake of fire, um, it must still be speaking symbolically of a literal, physical resurrection. Finally, the resurrection was not something that was newly taught in the New Testament. If you'll recall, Paul was on trial and said that his hope in the resurrection was firmly rooted in the Old Testament. Sure enough, we can go to passages like Job chapter 19 in verse 26 where he says that at some point after his body dies, he, uh, he says, from my flesh I shall see God. Now if he's going to see God from his flesh after his flesh is destroyed, well then his flesh is going to be reconstituted. He's going to be resurrected. Look at Daniel chapter 12 uh, verses 2 to 3 and 13. He, uh, it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And then later in that passage, he's told, you will enter into rest and rise again for your allotted portion at the end of the age. So awakening to everlasting life must be resurrection if sleeping in the dust is death with the spirit, uh, or while the spirit is in heaven, or the intermediate state. We can look at Isaiah, uh, chapter 26, verse 19, where he's told, where, uh, speaking of the people of Judah, your dead, will your dead will live, their corpses will rise, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits. 
And then we can look at First Samuel verse six, uh, chapter two, verse six, which in which Hannah sings, "The Lord kills and makes alive; He brings down to Sheol and He raises up." So Scripture speaks loudly from beginning to end, clearly and repeatedly of the resurrection. We see that Jesus taught it at least four times, and his listeners expected it in at least one case, and he didn't correct her. Three times, Paul makes it clear in Acts that as a good Pharisee, he hoped in it, and that it was firmly rooted in the Old Testament. In at least five passages, Peter and Paul teach the resurrection, most explicitly and powerfully, in Paul's uh, resurrection magnum opus, 1 Corinthians 15, in which he makes it clear that our physical bodies will rise from the graves, and that if this hope is false, Christians preach in vain. And then in John's vision of the future in Revelation, uh, the resurrection is explicitly taught. And in numerous places, four of which we've looked at, the resurrection is at least hinted at, if not explicitly said, in the Old Testament. When we compare this wealth of resurrection teaching with the few scattered, unclear passages that may or may not teach about the intermediate state that we call heaven, it becomes obvious why the early church placed such an enormous emphasis on the resurrection and seemingly de-emphasized um, the idea of there being a time after death during which our spirits await the resurrection in heaven. They weren't making this up. They, were, they weren't making a mountain out of a molehill. They were merely expressing agreement with what scripture clearly teaches. So let's try and wrap all this up. Is the church here in America justified in reversing the emphasis that the early church placed on heaven and the resurrection? No, we're not. Are hyperpreterists justified in rejecting the early church's consensus that our physical bodies will be raised from the grave? No, they're most definitely not. We must unite in agreement with the church throughout history in affirming the bodily, physical resurrection of the dead. And we ought to fervently hope in and long for that day in which our perishable, corruptible bodies will rise in glory imperishable, incorruptible, life everlasting in a new earth in the very presence of God. Paul once said, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, now we know the answer. God will. God will set us free from our bodies of death when he raises them anew, transforming them into bodies of life, harder, better, faster, stronger than the bodies that we have now. Amen. Harder, better, faster, stronger. Speaking of which, I know that it's probably not been the most enjoyable podcast to listen to, but I expect to get the hang of this and come back myself harder, better, faster, and stronger than this time around. So I hope that you'll join me in the future for the next episode. And until then, thanks for listening. Harder, better, faster, stronger.